0: So we're living in this moment where capitalism is in question again uh, around the world in all kinds of ways, and yet it has an amazing resilience, uh, seems despite the various challenges it's facing, uh, in many ways as hegemonic as ever, as dominant in the way the world works. What's your view of of the state of capitalism today? Is it seriously threatened?
1: Um, I do think it is, Um, though that doesn't necessarily mean that I think it's going to collapse next week or next month or even in the next couple of decades. This is a very fragile system, which uh, it seems particularly over the last 25 to 30 years has needed constant um, rebooting by government money. Uh, you know, whether this is, you know, the tech tech collapse of 2000, whether it's the banking and financial system collapse of 2008, and whether it's this, you know, relatively smaller, but still, I think, very significant and indicative uh, and illustrative event. Uh, capitalism just seems to need more and more propping up. So you've constantly got to resort to uh, government bailouts, um, uh, even of, uh, you know. Super investors, uh, you know, who will, you know, talk about what great, you know, swashbuckling risk takers they are uh, as venture capitalists. And then they're the first people to go to President Biden with the hats in hand, you know, please, please save me. So, so I do think that this is a very precarious system and possibly uh, even terminal. Uh, It's in a, a state of terminal decline. There's one uh, German sociologist uh, who I quote near the end of the book, Wolfgang Streck, um, who basically talks about capitalism in our time as being a kind of almost zombie uh, sort of, a, of an institution. It's, it, it's almost dead, uh, it, you know, it continues to languish, uh, thanks, as I said, to all kinds of government support, um, and yet it doesn't die. Right? I mean, the damn thing just will not die. And um, he thinks that possibly for the next 50, 60 years, this is the state we're going to be in, uh, where things just kind of languish and drift. Yeah. So I think I think the capitalism is probably going to continue for a while. It's just not going to be very robust. And, and it's going to be, as I said, in this strange state where it's, it's hegemonic, but not, not quite as hegemonic as it was, uh, say during the sort of um, the, the halcyon days of neoliberalism in the, in the 1990s and the, and the 2000s.
0: Right, when I went to college uh, in the late 90s, uh, it was definitely sort of this unquestioned fact of life, that this is the world you're gonna grow up and live your life and die in. And yet today, it does seem as if it's questioned on more and more sides. There was, of course, famously the Bernie Sanders run in this country in 2016. Uh, there is sort of growing interest in different forms of post-liberalism on the left and right. Um, on the right, you have you know new magazines like Compact, which are uh, not entirely on the right, but have a kind of right DNA, and yet are at least in word quite critical of capitalism Uh, in American politics today. If you look at figures like uh, Josh Hawley or JD Vance, uh, Mm -hmm. who are willing at least to talk about uh, capitalism as a thing that isn't an alloyed good, you write, in one place in the book that capitalism is a love story and it seems that that love story might be in a bit of trouble today
1: uh yeah it's it's a romance gone bad uh and or you know sour josh hawley and jd vance i think are as phony as two dollar bills i you know I, I i think these guys are uh just utter opportunists uh i i think that uh, you know they 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 say that oh, capitalism is something that maybe isn't an unalloyed good, and yet they they vote in such a way that says the other that says otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not, I wouldn't put too much faith in uh, the Hawleys and the Vances of the world. I do read Compact Magazine. I mean, I really think it's a fascinating journal. Um, I yeah, it is this strange kind of hybrid. Uh, of of what seems to be a kind of left-leaning or leftish kind of economic view, and yet it's also got this very culturally conservative sort of a stance. Um, and yeah, there's, a, there's an incredible array and mix of writers, sort of post-liberalism that you see from, uh, you know, people like Adrian Pabst and um, John Milbank. Uh, and, you know, arguably, this a lot of what you read in Plough that kind of post-liberalism, I'm really
0: interested in. So capitalism, as most people think of it today, uh, apart from just sort of being a fact of life of this is how our world works and this is how we all make our money, this is as frequently presented as this kind of neutral social technology to enable maximum human flourishing. Could you walk us through the reasons why you disagree with a claim that is a neutral social technology that leads to greater human flourishing?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, first of all, I don't think technology is ever neutral. Uh whether it's, uh, you know, social technology or whether it's, you know, technology technology, you know, and material devices. And the reason I think this is that technology is made by human beings. And uh so therefore technology always embodies uh some kind of human design and human uh interest. So I I I can't understand how anybody would think that technology is neutral. Uh, that, that somehow it's conceived and constructed and from some kind of Archimedean point of detachment or, or uh, you know, complete objectivity. So that's just on the level of definition. I, you know, I, I find that uh, unpersuasive, that point. Um, the, I guess the other thing that I was taking issue with the, in this book most centrally is the idea that capitalism is somehow uh, this this disenchanting um, uh process and um and even though you know it's made all and and one of the arguments as you suggest that's often made for it is that it's brought us all this uh you know all this great material progress uh it's it's led to all these incredible benefits uh that's you know taken us out of poverty and misery and oppression and and destitution and I want to tell a somewhat more complicated story in this book. I mean, you know, f- first of all, I don't think the world can be disenchanted. Um, because I think that the world is a sacramental place. Uh, I think that it's pervaded by the, uh, by the presence of God. You know, the, the, uh, <laughs> the world is charged with the grandeur of God, as, as Gerard Manley Hopkins put it. So I don't think that the world can ever be disenchanted. Uh, I think that this is a story we have told ourselves. Uh, about the meaning of modernity uh, and, and the meaning of capitalism, and I just don't think it's true. Uh, as for the uh, material progress that, that humanity has made in many areas, um, I don't, uh, you know, I don't deny a lot of that. I mean, you know, quite obviously, we are materially much better off than we were in the 17th century. We are by and large healthier. Uh, we live longer. Uh, we are better educated, you know, than than we were in the 17th century. I don't I don't deny any of that. It seems to me, however, that we should take, um, I think, a, a, a somewhat different view of of this. Um, I I think, uh, you know, for example, that this material progress that we've made, um, the only reason it's distributed. With even the you know the degree of uh, equitability that it is is thanks to political movements. There's there's no sort of natural uh, or or uh, inevitable kind of um, equity to the way that we distribute goods. Um, I also think that the so so I think there's a lack of politics uh, in, in the way that this uh, this is capitalism is often viewed. I also think that there's been a failure to distinguish uh, in a lot of this material progress between what John Ruskin once called wealth and what he called ilf. Uh, you know, our, our general way of looking at an economy now is to simply ask, well, how much stuff did we produce in the previous year when, when we have uh, measures like the gross domestic product? We don't ask, for example, uh, was, this, was any of the stuff that we produce actually good for us? You know, it's 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 one thing to say that, oh, great, you know, we produced a lot of good fruit and vegetables and a lot of uh, things that actually contribute to human flourishing, but we also produce things like cigarettes. Uh, you know, we, we also produce, uh, well, okay, I guess this is a political view. We also produce nuclear reactors, you know, things like this. So there's no kind of moral valuation of, of a lot of the stuff or a lot of the, quote, material progress. That we um, uh, that we produced, and and I haven't even mentioned yet the ecological cost of all of this, right? I mean, you know, so far I I've, I've talked, you know, I focused on the human, uh, you know, dimension of this, but we're talking about capitalism operating in, a, in a, on a planet, uh, and, you know, and you you simply can't have indefinite growth when you've got you know a, at least a somewhat finite, uh, you know. Base of resources. So we're only beginning, I think, to reckon with the, the ecological price uh, that we've had to pay for a lot of this. Um, so I think the story is just a heck of a lot more complicated than, you know, what the, the sort of story that you would hear from the Steven Pinkers of the world uh, about, about how wonderful this whole thing has been. We know that all of this is bad. And yet, we don't seem to be able to act any differently. And and I think that a lot of the reason for this is that we don't know what we want. We we sort of know that capitalism is going to destroy us, <laughs> right? But on the other hand, yeah, but what's the alternative? Mm. You know, and 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 if you don't have an alternative, you're you're by default going to just keep acting the way you've been. So I think that's I, I think that's part of the reason that even though I in a lot of ways I think neoliberalism is no longer uh, hegemonic, you know, to the same degree that it was, we we don't seem to have any conception of what an alternative way of life would be. So we just you know go into default mode.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit about this word enchantment, which mm-hmm. is so key in your book, um, the idea of capitalism of mammon as an enchantment there's as a kind of magical power that's uh mm-hmm. perhaps got a bit of a spiritual uh agency of its own uh, above and beyond what its participants may wish for or intend capitalism even by its critics is usually thought of as secular mm-hmm. as a this worldly thing even by you know, uh, devout Christians who embrace the free market economy, uh, they would think of capitalism as disenchanted. And even critics such as Karl Marx famously, uh, he wrote, and and I'm quoting uh, words that you include in your book, how capitalism dissolves all fixed, fast frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices Capitalism drowns the most heaven heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor in the icy water of egotistical calculation. So Max Weber, of course, is is famous for sort of uh, probably not inventing, but at least making popularizing the thesis that modernity is all about this process of disenchantment. Uh, You take issue with this long-established view, and you argue that capitalism though supposedly secular, is enchanted no less than the pre-modern worldviews, say, of the Middle Ages, that it supplanted. What does it mean that capitalism is enchanted? And how does that matter about how we think about our world today? I
1: think capitalism is enchanted uh, because, well, most fundamentally because I think we treat it with this kind of sacred awe uh, and and veneration. Um, Even though we don't, we'll, we we will often tell ourselves, no, we don't really revere the dollar. We don't really uh, consider it sacred. Well, yeah, we do, uh, and 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 the reason we do is that I think under capitalism, money actually does become a kind of moral or even ontological arbiter uh, of what's good and even what's real. Um, You know, one one way I like to illustrate this when I teach business students, and believe it or not, I get a lot of business students in my classes at Villanova, um, is I'll say, look, you guys in uh, standard economics, you have this notion called effective demand, right? And they'll say yes. And I said, well, you know, effective demand basically says that if I'm thirsty, but I don't have any money to pay for, say, a bottle of water, my thirst does not exist. It does not exist as a matter of the market. Am I right? And they'll say yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Your, your, uh, your your thirst has no effective demand. Right? I cannot, I cannot turn my thirst in, I, I, you know, into quenching my thirst because I have no money. Now, you and I both know that I'm still thirsty, but as a matter of the market. My thirst is non-existent. That, I try to explain to them, is both a moral and an ontological assertion, (laughs) right? The market is an ontology. It it is a way of understanding what's real about the world. Uh, And that's the kind of thing that usually we used to attribute to a divinity, (laughs) right, or to a god, right? I mean, you know, deciding not only what was right and wrong, but what was real. And what was unreal um you know we we believe that somehow the ontology or the metaphysical structure of the world was determined by some sort of a divine being well that's the role money plays uh in a a capitalist society if you don't have the money you don't exist uh you know or your needs don't exist and i think none other than karl marx noticed this right I mean, you know, Marx, I think, was in, in some ways of two minds about this, because he did say, as you quoted him from the Communist Manifesto, right? I mean, he does say, you know, capitalism is this secularizing force. It's this disenchanting force because, you know, everything gets reduced to calculation. He's also the guy, however, who in Das Kapital, in the very first uh, volume, introduces this uh, notion of what he calls commodity fetishism. Or, or the fetishism of commodities, and you know he starts off that passage by saying that uh, you know the commodity. If I remember the quote exactly here, the commodity is a queer thing. It has uh, metaphysical subtleties and theological niceties. This is Marx writing, right? And then what he what he does in the rest of that passage is he's trying to explain how it is that. Um, in, in the capitalist marketplace, the value of something is determined in pecuniary terms. Not, not whether it's useful or not, or you know, what, it's, what its utility is. It's all about what it can fetch in the marketplace. So in other words, money, is, money in capitalism has this kind of fetishistic quality, uh, where, you know, where we start attributing all kinds of powers uh, to, to money that it only really has because of us uh, and, and the way that we act. But we act as though it's somehow money itself uh, that, that uh, creates all of this value or, or that you know, somehow marks all of this value. So I think the capitalism is, is historically unique in this regard. I mean, you know, ancient medieval societies were always very suspicious of the power of money. Uh, which is one of the reasons you know in, in the in antiquity money was considered a God, right? Uh, you know and not just uh, you know in, in the near East uh, where you know the name Mammon was given to it, but you see this across many cultures uh, in the ancient world that that money is deified and um, not necessarily in a good way, right? I mean it's 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 a bad God, it's a bad spirit. Um, uh, the spirit of acquisition and of uh, ruthlessness is, is usually associated with
0: it. There's this quote from the theologian Jacques Ellul. I love that kind of illustrates this. He writes, "Money is a power. This term should be understood not in its vague meaning of force, but in the specific sense in which it is used in the New Testament. Power is something that acts by itself, is capable of moving other things, is autonomous or claims to be, is a law unto itself." and presents itself as an active agent.
1: Yeah. I think, the, I think the really important part of that quote is it presents itself as being an agent. And, you know, it seems to be an autonomous power. You know, one thing that I think, um, I, I think the Marxist tradition is very strong on this, and, and this is something that I think uh, uh, Christians especially should pay attention to, is that, you know, Marx... Comes, keeps coming back to this idea that really the power of money is our power that, that we have somehow you know, deified uh, in, in, in this fashion. And I think um, this will probably you know, anticipate some remarks I'll make later uh, in, our, in our conversation. I think we're doing the same thing right now to technology. We're, we're giving it this kind of independent agency uh, in our lives when, as I said, Technology is made by us, which means that, you know, when we're talking about the power of technology, we should properly be talking about the power of some people over others.
0: Speaking of of money as a power, uh, of course, brings us to the New Testament. Uh, And this word mammon uh, that's in the title of your book, uh, of course, comes from the Gospels. Uh, There's a saying of Jesus that is familiar to all of us. No man can serve two masters. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. That's in Matthew 6, 24. So what is mammon and how does using this term change how we think about capitalism?
1: Well, mammon in the New Testament is a god. Uh, It's a, it's a, or at least a spirit, uh, a demon. Um, And uh, it's a demon which you know encourages acquisitiveness, cupidity, um, ruthlessness, uh, endless dissatisfaction. You know, for the for the purposes of endless acquisition uh, and, and growth. The reason I think it's important to talk about it as a spirit, and what it, the reason I think that's important for our, our understanding of the, or the way we talk about capitalism. Is that we usually understand capitalism strictly as a political economy? Uh, you know, we think about it as a certain configuration of markets uh, and property and uh, different roles for the state uh, and so on. And this is the way that you know, look, conservatives, liberals, Marxists—this is the way we usually talk about this. And yet, it seems to me that—and uh, this is part of what I'm getting at. When I use the term mammon, is that capitalism is also, I think, a form of moral imagination, uh, and it's a form of spiritual formation. Uh, we don't, again, we don't usually think of it that way, but I think that's what it is. Uh, I think we should start talking about, for example, uh, advertising as a form of iconography. Uh, you know, every bit as much as you know seeing saints and uh, you know stained glass windows at Chart. Is, is a form of iconography just as uh, you know, Eastern Orthodox churches are filled with, uh, with icons. I think that this is actually one of the best ways to try to understand what's going on in the advertising uh, symbolic universe. Because what is, what is being upheld in advertising? Uh, you're not just selling goods, you're selling a way of life. You're selling a way of thinking about the way people should, uh, should live. You're, you're selling an image of the good life. How is that any different from, you know, being told, being shown on the windows of Chart that, you know, you should, you should be like, uh, you know, Saint whoever. Um, I don't think there's really much of a difference. Uh, you know, both both are forms of, as I said, of moral imagination. Uh, there's a certain conception embedded in these images of, what, um, of what's right, what's wrong, what's proper, what's uh, what's improper. And it's also a form of spiritual formation, uh, you know, toward what should your soul be directed? Um, you know, in short, it's, well, heaven, right? It's it's the kingdom of God. It's the beloved community, you know, whatever you want to call it. In capitalism, your spiritual formation is how do you get a hefty bank account? Uh, you know, how, how do you, and you know, there are different ways you could put this. How do I provide for my family? Uh, you know, or how do I, you know, capitalism is always able to appropriate family values uh, to its uh, ideological repertoire, um, but it's still in, in, in fundamentally about how do I make, how do I accumulate the most money that I can, or my company can.
0: Within Christianity, uh, there is this, going right back again to the New Testament, this I don't think hostility to, to money, to capitalism, uh, that's, you know, just barely, remains just barely below the surface throughout Christian history. Uh, w- after Jesus, of course, uh, the book of Acts tells about the first church in Jerusalem. Uh, in Acts two and four, there's, it paints a picture of the first church Uh, of the believers holding all things in common, of sharing, of giving uh, to each according to their need, uh, and of all contributing what they can. Uh, Kind of Marxist sounding uh, passage. (laughs) And and of course he, Marx himself, regarded this voluntary communism of the first church as a kind of prototype of the communist society he envisioned or hoped for or expected, predicted. What, what is the importance of that, the early church's approach to economic sharing? And what is the distinction between that kind of voluntary communism and the political communism that we associate with, you know, a lot of what happened in the 20th century?
1: So I think the, uh, I think the importance of that uh, depiction of the earliest Christian community in the book of Acts, uh, the reason that I think it should be Almost stenciled on the forehead of every Christian is that what this demonstrates is that the early Christians were communists, uh, you know, with a with a small C. Uh, I cannot reiterate this enough. You know, uh, my friend David Bentley Hart has been insisting on this at least for the last five or six years, uh, both in you know essays that he's written and uh, even in his translation of the New Testament. You know, he he goes out of his way to make this point. You know, Christians have found ways for centuries, uh, all kinds of laughable exegetical strategies, to try to make the text say not say what it clearly does say. Uh, that you know, people held their goods in common, and that they distributed things according to need. Um, you know, especially during the Cold War, there was a uh, you know a, a, a an obsession with trying to make this text say something entirely different from what it actually says. Um so I think what it demonstrates is that in some ways communism small c communism is the political unconscious of christianity, right? I mean it's not as though you know the early christians had some kind of a program for changing society. I mean that's you, you just didn't have that kind of thing in the ancient world. Uh you know, you don't have ideologies or um you know, visions of social reconstruction or or progress that you have in in modern times. Um, And I think that's one of the things that makes the communism of the early Christians different from that, from the sort of communism that Marx envisions. Because Marx's communism, I mean, you could go down the the list of things that make it different, right? I mean, the idea that, um, you know, there's a theory of class struggle, you know, there's a whole historical theory behind it. Um, the fact that um, uh, Marxian communism, at least in histor- the way it's played out historically has involved the, uh, the an authoritarian state, you know, to, to direct production and, re- and distribute goods. I think that one of the most that one of the key differences uh, between the vision of the early Christians and that of uh, uh, modern Marxists is that the communism of, m- modern Marxism, is very much in line with the capitalism of its predecessor and antagonist, right? So you know, capitalists are always talking about growth and technological innovation and how uh, the object of capitalist enterprise is constant, constant production of material abundance, you know, and, and so on. That Marx thinks this too, right? I mean, this is this is very clear uh, uh, when you read. Um, You know, through the volumes of Das Kapital, that that Marx too thinks that hey man, communism we're gonna let her let her rip in in terms of technological progress, in terms of material development. Um, You know, it's it's a very modern vision in 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 the sense that uh, technological development, material abundance are seen as goods in themselves. Um, You know, regardless of you know any other kind of end you know, or or any other kind of uh, human objective. That, to me, I think is in many ways the defining difference uh, between these two forms of communism.
0: Yeah, I love that phrase that you just used of, of communism, this early Christian form of communism, as the barely repressed political unconscious of Christendom. And you see that, of course, moving forward to the church history that remained part of of Christian teaching. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, who remains the basis of Catholic social teaching today, uh, spoke of the universal destination of goods. Has anything shifted if we think no longer of communism, but rather of the universal destination of goods?
1: Yeah, I think even there, Aquinas is 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 registering just how far that we've come from the original vision, <laughs> right? Because, because uh, Aquinas doesn't at all believe in common ownership. You know, I mean the the notion of of um, the notion of communism or or of you know universal destination of goods is one that is very much compatible with incredible inequalities of wealth. Um, you know, I, I think that this is one of the problems in fact with a lot of Catholic social teaching is that they're trying to reconcile two different things.'re they're, they're trying to reconcile what's essentially a, a capitalist notion of private property with a ancient or with an ancient or medieval notion that well, you know we should distribute goods equitably. You can't do both of those things, right? uh you you can't do both of them at once and uh i think this is in some ways this is the basic problem with a lot of catholic social teaching and and you can see it you can see it in aquinas um aquinas is not going to is not going to ask the kings and the 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 feudal lords of his time to surrender their their castles and their and their fiefdoms you know he's not going to go there uh but but he also has the book of acts in front of him So, you know, how, what, what is a scholastic to do? Uh, You know, so what he, what he does is he, he, he talks about the universal destination of goods. You know, we should all try to, we should all try to help the poor and we should, but he doesn't say abolish poverty. Uh, You know, that would require something that was much more, much more radical and much more uh, threatening to the powers that be, you know, both of the. 13th century and, you know, and of the 21st, you know, for that matter.
0: Given the fact that Jesus was so clearly hostile to mammon and St. James speaks so strongly about uh, what awaits the wealthy, the Apostolic Fathers, the Didache, they all sort of re-echo these themes. Uh, St. John Chrysostom, Basil of Caesarea, uh, and as you say, Aquinas himself, are, are pretty nervous uh, about money all the way through. So it's striking how big a role Christianity and its various forms have played in the rise of capitalism as we know it in the modern world since the 17th century. Uh, this is a vast story, but ha- how did that happen? Could you kind of sketch it out real fast? Um, how was the apparent peace made uh, between Christianity and money-making?
1: Well, I think that this is part of a much longer story. I you know the 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 piece that was struck with Mammon uh was in a sense modeled on the piece that was inevitably struck with Caesar uh at, you know and Mars, you know what what's sometimes called the Constantinian bargain. Uh, you know, in other words, you got we're, we'll tolerate you guys, we'll let you guys preach, we'll let you uh you know perform your liturgies, uh we'll let you basically, we'll let you alone, we won't persecute you anymore, as long as you basically swear your allegiance to the structures of imperial Rome. Um, You know, and I think, you know, even though I teach at an Augustinian University, I think the villain in this piece is St. Augustine. You know, I mean, you know, he's the guy who basically signs the ideological warrant, uh, or or concordat, uh, with, with the powers that be. So I think as soon as, as as soon as you make that kind of a bargain with Caesar uh, and, and with Mars, you know if you want to you want to use another god, there's a sense in which the peace with Mammon is just inevitable, right? I mean that's that's kind of part of the deal, that uh, you know you have to you have to strike a strike some kind of a, an understanding, and, and often a very lucrative one uh, with uh, you know with, with these powers that be. I mean, specifically about capitalism, I think I think that Weber was right uh, when when he said that there was something crucial about the Protestant Reformation here, and uh, I you know I do think that what uh, happens, and again, this is a, a much longer story that I tell in the book, but one of the uh, effects of the Protestant Reformation, particularly in its Calvinist um, uh, its Calvinist dimension is a certain kind of desacramentalizing of, of the natural world uh, and, and of the world in general. Um, and so, as I've said before, since I think that the world is a sacramental place, I think that what happens here is that you know, money rushes in to fill that kind of sacramental va- vacuum or, or, or that kind of um, moral or ontological vacuum. And I think that that's that's one of the big reasons why the Protestant Reformation does remain central to understanding the the rise of capitalism. Now you know when you get into the 19th and 20th centuries, I mean you know you're talking about I think especially evangelical Protestantism has has become, <laughs> good God, I mean you know Chris Lehman once once called it the money cult, <laughs> you know, which. Um, I'm sad to say. I, I think that that's what a lot of it has become, uh, and 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 you know, as I argue, you know, later in the book, I think you can't understand evangelical Protestantism, or for that matter, Mormonism, uh, without understanding uh, it, their deep ties to um, American capitalism and its development in the 19th century. Now, I don't want to let Catholics off the hook here, okay. Um, you know, I, I think I think, uh, you know, in many ways, Catholics, especially after the Second World War, I mean, you know, once they start getting educated and once they start entering the middle class and once they start, you know, basically living in the suburbs, you know, Catholics, basically you're joining in this party, too. Right. I mean, hey, let's let's all make money. Let's all, you know, become uh, Let's all become venture capitalists and 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 whatnot. And uh, you know you got theologians or philosophers like Michael Novak and you know Father Richard John Newhouse you know, putting basically baptizing this with holy water. And um, you know, so I'm not going to let my my fellow denominationalists uh, off the hook. You know, ev- ev- everybody's everybody's guilty here. <laughs> or just about everybody,
0: anyway. As a good Christian, we kind of have to say that everyone is guilty to some degree, but there is this counter tradition, this uh, stream of people throughout church history, uh, throughout, throughout the history of the West, particularly who did not go along with this, who saw, were critics of capitalism, who uh, harked back to, those original, you know, quote unquote, communist seeds of Christianity and uh, try to make them come alive. Could you describe this counter, what I'm calling this counter tradition, you call it uh, critics of capitalism. Uh, What were they, what were the some broad commonalities of that critique? And then we're going to talk about a few individual people uh, who, maybe are are worth rediscovering again
1: yeah i um the name i give to this counter tradition is capital r romanticism um it includes christians though many are not uh or you know they're christians who could be orthodox or heterodox christians um basically i think romantics uh are the heirs to the medieval sacramental imagination right the 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 medieval sacramental imagination was the one that I was outlining earlier. That that uh, you know God is everywhere. God suffuses the material natural world. Um, you know, sacramental, not just in the sense of the discrete seven sacraments, but but a you know a sort of constitutive part of the architecture of the world. Um, and so, romantics are in a sense post-Christian. Uh, you know, because you, you know, when you've got romantic writers like Blake and Wordsworth, it's not quite clear whether they're Christians or post-Christians or heterodox Christians or whatever. But uh, you know, they still believe in some kind of divine presence that pervades the world, right? I mean, you can see this in Blake's, you know, talking about um, seeing the world, uh, seeing the heavens in a, in a wild flower. Uh, Wordsworth's talking about you know some kind of a sense sublime that suffuses all things. Um, um, I, think, I think that Romanticism is not just a discrete literary and artistic movement of the late 18th and 19th centuries. I think it's actually a very distinctive feature of modern culture uh, in general. I think you can see Romanticism going all the way in my book up to the 1960s and 70s, and some of the figures you mentioned, like Kenneth Rexroth and Thomas Merton, uh, Theodore Rozak, you know, is, is another one. Dorothy Day before them, you know they're, they're, there's many, many many in this cavalcade of romantics uh, in, in the book. What distinguished them? Uh, as I said, I think that they they see a kind of sacral significance in the material world, which then I think makes them much more ecologically sensitive uh, and which means therefore that they don't see nature uh, or they don't um, they don't value nature purely in instrumental terms. Uh, you know what what can it do for us? Uh, I think that they they often appeal to pre-capitalist cultures uh, as sources of value. Uh, some of them do become reactionaries and they actually want to go back to the Middle Ages quite literally, uh, but most of them are not. Um, I think that they often are in favor of direct workers' control over production, which makes uh, many of the many of the romantic figures in my book are anarchists uh, and arts and crafts. Uh, writers and practitioners. Uh, They see labor as properly artisanal uh, rather than uh, mechanical. They see the act of labor itself as something that is actually a kind of poetry in action, a poetry of everyday life. This is why they tend to favor artisans and craftsmen. They believe that our technology should be more human scale and much more directly in our control. And they also see uh, property as in some sense communal or even communist, even when they're talking about private property, that that privacy is always hedged, right, with all kinds of um, uh, restrictions and requirements. And, uh, uh, you know, you can see this in a figure like John Ruskin when he's talking about what communism means. I think that in many ways Pope Francis uh, belongs in this romantic uh, uh, lineage because when you read what he writes in Laudato Si', uh, his his uh, his encyclical on I think it's an on on all of society. I don't think it's just an ecological encyclical as it's often characterized. Um, he's talking about what he calls a social mortgage on property. That's you know that's kind of a way of saying that. Pri- pri- property isn't just private right e- even though even though you you know that's that's unfortunately the word that we use to characterize it. Um, it's not. So the romantics uh th- this and this these romantics are a very big it's a big tent uh you know I don't I I don't think it's so big that I think it's meaningless but I but I think um, these are the sorts of characteristics that I think you can uh, identify.
0: So we agreed to talk about three of these figures, uh, all heroes of this romantic counter tradition. The first is not that well-known, uh, Gerard Wynn Stanley, but he's a bit of, uh, uh, he comes across as, uh, someone who should be much more widely known, who is he, what did he live in, uh, what relevance do his insights have, have for us today?
1: Well, Gerard when stanley was an English, uh, at first he was like a, he was a herder. He was a, a a a barely employable guy uh, in the 1640s. He eventually, ironically, becomes the successful corn merchant, uh, you know, after, um, after the English, uh, after the English Revolution. But uh, when stanley was one, uh, was a member of what was uh, called the Diggers, Uh, And these were people, uh, I think there were about 20 or 30 of them who, one nice day in April 1649, decided that they were going to just go to some place called St. George's Hill uh, outside of London. And they were going to just occupy a piece of common land, right? I mean, so these were the first occupiers, right? I mean, not the folks in 2011. You know, these, these were the first occupiers. And they just said, look, nobody's using this land we're poor farmers, we need food, so we're just gonna go and do it. We're we're just gonna do it. And um, that lasted until August, (laughs) when the owner of the land was able to get a legal, uh, what we would call a legal injunction against them and had them kicked off the land. But what's significant is that after that, when Stanley begins to write these pamphlets, And these are pamphlets, which are basically religious and political tracts, uh, in which he is basically articulating a kind of sacramental communism, right? I mean, he starts off, uh, one of these pamphlets by saying the great creator reason made the earth a common treasury, you know, there you go. Uh, you know, God made the earth to be owned by all, to be worked by all and, um, basically what the diggers are doing is trying to in effect reinstate that pre-lapsarian uh you know conception of the way things ought to be and um you know when stanley is is clearly very sacramentalist in the way he thinks about the world he thinks about creation as what he calls the clothing of god uh he uh clearly thinks that private property is an evil what he calls civil propriety, and that's what, what, in our terms, would be private property. He considers this an evil. This is a this is a result of the fall, uh, and and uh, you know now that in his view Christ has you know reversed the effects of the fall. Therefore, we should we should return to that blissful state uh, of, of communal property. When Stanley, to me, I think is the first Romantic, I think, he's, I think he's also significant, as I say, because Marxists have tried to appropriate him as being in a sense like this kind of proto-Marxist. And I, I just don't see that at all.
0: So let's go forward into the Romantic era proper, almost two, two centuries, to the essayist Thomas Carlyle. He wrote a bunch of essays. Uh, he described at one point the Gospel of Mammon, Uh, just as the industrial revolution was picking up steam so here again uh, uh, how does this observer of capitalism sort of going into acceleration how can his insights tell us something about the world we're living in now
1: i think carlisle is in some ways a very cautionary tale uh, about where things can get right and where they can go very wrong um <clears throat> he does he does talk about the gospel of mammonism um he also talks about the difference at least the way i understand it between what he calls wonder and what he calls enchantment he actually uses this term uh wonder to carlisle i think is a is a kind of sacramental imagination right when he's talking about the wonder of creation the wonder of the world the amazing nature of the fact that the, just the fact that the universe is, you know, regardless of, uh, you know, the, the particulars of what's in it. Wonder is a kind of sacramental sensibility. Enchantment is a kind of perversion of that, right? Uh, you know, in his view, which is related to the gospel of mammonism, where we, we evaluate everything in terms of pecuniary uh, values. He also talks about this uh, thing called heroism. Right, and there's this book of his called "Heroes and Hero Worship," which, which I think is very uh, significant. Hero, heroes to him, and heroism is is a way of understanding this wonder. Heroes are are people who exhibit wonder uh, at the world and exude this kind of wonder and and act in accordance with this wonder. Um, The problem, though, with the way he understands heroism, is that only a few people are capable of this, right? (laughs) Um, Carlyle is in many ways a profoundly elitist and anti-democratic thinker, precisely because of this. And I think this, you know, he talks about mobocracy, he talks about people, people's quote, amenability to beer and balderdash you know I mean this is this is the kind of thing that uh you know you you often hear from a certain kind of conservative that um yeah you know most people really are just rabble they'll never understand anything they need to be led they need to be told you know what to do they're not smart enough to figure things out and this is why you really can't believe in democracy in the end I mean they won't say that uh you know quite often but um so I think Carlisle uh, ends up, you know, being a kind of advocate of the gospel, uh, what he calls the gospel of work uh, and of what he calls captains of industry. Um, he's, he's very much a believer, uh, not so much in the gospel of mammonism, but in, in the gospel of work.
0: And, um, you know, in a sense, he never stopped being a Puritan. <laughs> In that way, he's a, a contrast to his contemporary John Ruskin, who also figures in your book. Uh, you d- mentioned already his distinction between wealth and and ilk.
1: Yeah, Ruskin. Ruskin's a whole other kettle of fish. Ruskin himself was certainly no small D Democrat, uh, but he was, I think, a much keener and and a much, in his way, I think, much more small D Democratic thinker than uh, than Carlyle was because you know, Ruskin is always talking about the creativity and the talent uh, of ordinary people, uh, of ordinary artisans and farmers and other, um, uh, I guess, small fry, you know, mm. as, as mm. opposed to uh, uh, Carlisle's heroes. Uh, Ruskin is in his, even though Ruskin considered himself a Tory, he called himself a Tory, you know, he's, he's also a guy who considered himself a communist, so, you know, part of what I try to do in the books is explain how, how this guy could be a Tory and yet also be a communist uh, mm-hmm. at the same time.
0: A third thinker I'd like to talk about is uh, Edward Arnold, the founding editor of Plough, who wrote an essay, The Fight Against Mammon in 1924, very much inspired by the Romantic movement. Could you reflect a little bit on that essay and what it means. This is an essay that appeared after the Bolshevik revolution was seven years old. Um, and was an attempt I think, to kind of recover this early Christian communism for the 20th century.
1: First of all, is what you just mentioned. I mean, what, uh, what Arnold is clearly trying to do is both understand the Bolshevik revolution he's trying to understand uh various socialist and anarchist movements and he even says at one point you know look we're we're in a lot of fundamental agreement with these people uh you know they're not wrong uh, about about a lot of what they're saying about the the injustice and indignity of capitalism um what they're not seeing <laughs> is that i mean first of all violent revolution is not going is just not going to cut it because You know, first of all, it's going to involve a lot of bloodshed. uh, You know, which we're, you know, we see other people as our brothers and sisters. We we shouldn't be shedding their blood. The other thing that I really appreciated about that piece was what he says about the role churches have played uh, in 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 perpetuating capitalism and 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 just basically going along to get along. And um, even when they even when they you know, have these scriptures, and often they'll preach these scriptures on Sunday, which are constantly telling people that look, Mammon is an evil god, right? You know, you you should not be uh, you should not be following this master, and yet you're trying to serve two masters.
0: So, for these figures and the other romantics uh, that you described, this sort of romantic counter kind of tradition, many would object hearing about this well they're just romantics um they're idealistic they're not effectual uh pretty much the critique of uh, marx would have of some of his sort of proto-communist predecessors like proudhon and uh the various you know pre-marxist communists so folks might say it seems that the various anti-capitalist visionaries you describe are, are doomed to be no more effectual than say Occupy Wall Street was. It happened, got a lot of press, and the dream of anarchist utopia didn't survive the real world.
1: Yeah, I, have, I guess I'd have two responses for that. Uh, one is that when you look at romantics like Ruskin or, or William Morris, uh, uh, is one who hasn't come up yet, these figures were key in the ideological and political formation of the British Labor Party. Uh, So if anybody thinks that the formation of the British Labour Party was not important, uh, I have to wonder how they evaluate history uh, and and its significance. So many leaders and rank and file members of the Labour Party in in the late 19th and early 20th centuries said that it was reading Ruskin and reading Morris that made them into socialists, that made them into want to join the Labour Party and, and affect what you know. What, whatever degree of reform they were able to affect so that's uh, you know that's one response I would give to that um another I would I would mention somebody like John Muir uh, who's uh, you know the American uh, environmental activist of the early 20th century who I talk about in this book I cannot conceive how you would have a modern environmental or ecological movement without uh, the writing of John Muir uh, and and others <clears throat> who I mentioned in here. As far as Occupy is concerned, I don't think Occupy has been completely without effect. You know, we I think we mentioned Bernie Sanders uh, earlier in in, uh, in our conversation, and uh, I don't think Bernie Sanders candidate would candidacy would have been conceivable unless we had had uh, the Occupy Wall Street uh, movement. Now, you know, did they did they overthrow capitalism? No, uh, but man. The Democratic Party, for for all its problems, uh, you know, and for all its shortcomings, uh, is certainly not just uh, lock, stock and barrel under neoliberalism anymore, like it was under the Clintons and Obama. Uh, and and um, I think a lot of that has to do with the energy and imagination that was provided by, um, by Occupy Wall Street.
0: Which takes us up to the present day. And maybe let's, uh, as we conclude our conversation, let's think about uh, where we are right now 2023, where the sheen is off neoliberalism, but capitalism has a new uh, place where all the excitement is. Uh, Artificial intelligence. It's being set up as a technology that's going to upend how we live, how economies function. There's many hopes for it. On the other side the possibility that artificial intelligence could come to dominate humanity or even lead to human extinction if ai took control of things happening in the real world can we apply this insight about enchantment to artificial intelligence how should we understand the the spiritual forces in technological systems and how they relate to the story about capitalism that we've been talking about
1: yeah i I'm writing, uh, okay, this is from the Department of uh, Shameless Self-Promotion. I'm writing a a short book right now uh, on automation, and uh, it's kind of a historical slash philosophical slash theological illumination on it. For one thing, I think that a lot of the claims that are being made for automation and AI are frankly hyped up. Um, in, In many ways, we are nowhere close to this kind of inflection point, you know, let alone a what is it? Ray Kurzweil calls it a singularity, where you know we're going to be all connected to machines and all this. The, I, I think that a lot of this is is uh, it's it's. I think it's even even though I doubt it's going to happen, I think that the very ideas are significant uh, because of what they say about the role technology plays with us. Um, um, as far as, you know, AI taking over the world and destroying us and all this, I guess I'll go back to what I said earlier, which is I think this is a form of fetishism. Uh, you know, it's if, if we destroy ourselves, it's not gonna be AI that does it, it's gonna be us that does it. <laughs> you know, we're the ones who are gonna be doing it. Because, you know, I, I keep coming back to this point, we're the ones who make this technology, uh, which is why I don't think, frankly, AI is ever gonna develop a consciousness of its own because it only can have what is programmed into it by us i think we need to understand that and and you know underline it bold it italicize it you know ai is only what we make it and so therefore i think that focusing so much on the technology is a way of not focusing on the human system the human relationships in which this technology arises now, as far as, you know, the enchantments of Mammon are concerned, look, I mean, most of these AI companies, all of these AI companies are capitalist. So, you know, this technology and its uses are going to be informed by precisely uh, the, the same rage to accumulate and, you know, in the spirit of accumulation that you're, you've seen in previous forms of capitalism. It's same old, same old. I mean, you know, this is the same story we've been hearing since the 17th century. You know, capitalism is going to make your life better. Well, the only way that capitalism has made anybody's life better uh, is not just because we had, um, you know, nicer and more productive gadgets. It was because we had things like social and political movements, <laughs> you know, like like labor unions and uh, political parties uh, that that were able to shape this process in, in a more humane and generous way. Uh, it's it it's not something that capitalism does just naturally at all.
0: So last question, you you didn't write this book just so people would, you know, go to the library and start reading Win Stanley and Ruskin and Carlisle and Edward Arnold, um, but presumably so that people would do something. Um, so what concretely do you hope that people persuaded that there is an alternative to capitalism will do to live differently? One well, of the lines from your book, uh, I'll just read back to you. Uh, a new radicalism must begin from a faith in the fundamental joy of being, a realized eschatology, if you will, the future in the f- present tense, loving the new world and the wreckage of the old, and you mention not a modern, uh, not a new Benedict as per Alastair McIntyre, but rather a new St. Francis is what we need today. Um, could you unpack that a bit?
1: Wow. I'm always, this is the question that I always try to avoid. (laughs) Mm. This is, this is where I go from being just a mere humble historian, uh, you know, you know, to being some kind of a prognosticator about the future. Um, look, I mean, I think in many ways, the fundamental, the fundamental practice is to try to be a good Christian, to try to be loving and charitable and merciful. Uh, you know, developing certain kinds of uh, one's own, developing this in one's own life. Um, as far as the political shakeout, uh, how, what 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 this all means? I, honestly, I'm not I'm not entirely clear myself on what it means. I think that it does mean um, a, I, I, I do think it means that that we should support something like a revitalized kind of labor union movement. Um, Because I do think that um, if we're going to get a handle on things like AI, if we're going to get a handle on um, uh, the ecological devastation that the system is is, uh, wreaking, then these movements have to be rooted in workplace struggles uh, over, over the design and the deployment of technology. What I think needs to be also done is look. We gotta have we gotta have activism within the churches. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, the American church establishment—Protestant, Catholic, uh, orthodox don't you know—include Jewish and Muslim too. I mean, I, I think that so much of the American religious establishment is bought and paid for. Uh, you know, the these guys have not had would not know a prophetic voice if it yelled at them for decades. Uh, they you know they've signed on to the system and man, they're not gonna do anything to to uh to destabilize it at all. As usual, you know, we have to we have to have lay people <laughs> teaching these guys how to be Christians. Uh and um yeah, I guess that's I guess that's where I where I'd end it. Look well, there. thanks. All right, take care. There you go. Take care, bye.